Hey, La Camina. I, I thought you were still in Mexico City. I just got back. I was there reporting on Day of the Dead. That is excellent. Yeah, and I was exploring the Sonora witchcraft market, and I came across this delightful handcrafted tea set. You can see there are skeletons all over it. And I thought it might make an excellent addition to the estate's collection. I think it definitely will. And we can try it out right now because I just got some Egyptian hibiscus and we can go brew up a batch of hamika and let's sit and catch up since it's been so long since you've been in town. Sounds delicious. Welcome to the Tea Room Dialogues, a production of the Satanic Estate. I'm Jack Materko. The comments and opinions expressed are those of the participants and do not represent the views of the Satanic Estate, the Satanic Temple, or anyone else except the speaker. A part of the journalism game that, that really... Uh, made me wonder about how you because i've tried my hand at travel journalism and it's just not my thing but I, i'm really curious about like how the 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 cost benefit of that because obviously there's people who are just like they're desperate to get out they want to see the world and if you're presenting it to them obviously they're going to be interested if if they're missing that right but on the other side of that coin airlines are desperate for people so airline rates are down, right? That's got to mm -hmm. work in your favor. Well, I haven't been personally traveling. I've stayed entirely in Vancouver, Canada, other than local trips at the point last summer when it was safe and allowed to by the local government. So I've really been pressing the message of responsible travel, staying in your local community and following the guidelines. But the travel writing I've been doing has been more on the inspirational side Publications have also been quite careful to balance stories that they don't want to encourage people to get on the plane and get out there, but they still want to give them ideas and inspiration. So I've been write, I've been able to write stories such as uh, devilish destinations around the world that are more for the future or things yeah, like, no, like um, well, dreaming part of and that travel. Is you did all this traveling before the pandemic hit, so you could kind of go back into that backlog and say, hey, here's stuff that that I think is interesting that you might want to go check out once all this mess is over. That's exactly it. And the funny thing is because I was traveling so much before, it was go, go, go. And I never really got a chance to sit down and dive a bit deeper into some of the places and stories that I experienced. But now I'm able to do that for publications. And this is also a pivot for me. I never pitched and wrote for as many publications as I do now. So, so like, what is the stuff that you're front? Like, I mean, you've already been to these places and you've checked them out and you've got a feel for them. And now you've been stuck in this pandemic environment where you're not traveling as much and you're, you're delving deeper into why those places are so cool. What, what, what is it about, like, what are you finding out there? Yeah, it's really been nice to revisit because then well, first of all, I have an enormous archive of photos, and that's something I'm glad I did on every single trip. I would take thousands of photos, and you just never know when they might come in handy. For instance, one site wanted me to write about the coolest hotel beds I've slept in around the world, and it just so happens that every single place I went, I would take photos of the hotel rooms, so I have all these great photos and stories ready from my past travels. Well, that's rad. 
So, so where, where, where are your favorite, given the pandemic and you haven't been traveling, like where are the, where, what are the top three places that you've been to that you'd like to go back to now that you've learned more stuff about them diving down internet rabbit holes? Yeah. So Japan remains one of my favorite places on earth. And that was my specialty before I would be in Japan one or two times a year for reporting, for writing or for travel TV work. And I just always assumed I could be in Tokyo pretty much whenever I wanted to, right? Hop on a plane, the jobs keep coming, your friends are there, there's always the opportunity. And that was completely taken away from me. And that's something I never expected. So as soon as it's possible to be back there, I will be in Japan and I will not take it for granted again. So that's one place. As for the rest, no particular place in mind, but I'm pretty open. I think a lot of it depends on being responsible too. I want to see which countries have, uh, what are the infection rates in the countries? Um, what is the local situation regarding COVID and safety? And keep that in mind for my future travels. So what do you look for? Like when you're picking places you want to go to, what is it that you look for? Every single time I look for what is underground, subculture, alternative, and that's naturally become the focus of my work. And that can have a pretty broad definition. So let's say I'm in London. Other travel writers, they might have a different niche. They might talk about theater or family travel, or they might focus on the main landmarks. But for me, I would talk about the history of Highgate Cemetery. I would visit this absinthe shop run by Victor Wynne, the collector of curiosities and things like that. I covered the Satanic Temple's disco party in London, for example. So wherever I go, I'm looking for what is on the underground side of things. Who are the leading creatives in the subculture? And what are the dark and morbid places in each city that people may not necessarily venture into? So what is your, what is your, what is your strategy for, for kind of feeling out where those places are before you actually get there because it, it, we we both done some travel and like mm -hmm. I, my strategy when i'm in a new place is to just wander off and get lost and like part of finding my way back to my hotel is me finding all the weird spots yes i love doing that but i have to be a bit more structured these days just because of the type of work i do Mm -hmm. I think my feelers are always out and you could even argue that I've been having these feelers out since I was a teen and just being interested in gothic culture around the world. You pick stuff up from your friends who say, oh, I went here or there's this great festival or, oh, you have to go to this place we discovered. And over the years, because of the blogging work I do and social media, you get to know people around the world who share your interests. So, for instance, a random place like Slo Slovakia I went to a few years ago. There happened to be this gothic girl I knew through social media and she showed me around to all these places that you would not be able to find online. But I also do research. I look in advance. I think I'm, I just, I'm pretty good at finding these dark and weird places. And if possible, I'll make arrangements to visit them because if you randomly show up, you may not have full access or they may be closed. Um, but in order to get the best reporting, there does have to be some planning in ahead. What was the hardest place you've been to to, to find gothic subculture? Uh, like, it, it, have you ever had a situation where you've gone somewhere and 
and like you were expecting to find something and you looked in your normal places and and you just couldn't find it like what was the hardest place to hunt something down i like that challenge i feel like there's always an interesting story no matter where you go it may not have to do with something gothic or something satanic but there's always some offbeat artsy weird side to any place i did an entire series for huffington post called Cool Hunting Wisconsin. They sent me to Milwaukee. They just picked the most random place that you wouldn't expect to have anything interesting. And it was my challenge to find these strange places. So I found <laughs> this hotel that had themed rooms, alien rooms, water beds. There was a handcuffed fetish room. And I went to some spy bar. So I was able to find quirky things, even if they're not necessarily gothic in even a place like that. See, but at the same time, though, like the other side of that is just like, I mean, when you, th you think about like the ties between gothic and industrial music and like industrial, like what that word means. And you think of someplace like Milwaukee's an industrial city. It, <laughs> it, 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 it might not like industrial music, but it's an industrial city, right? Like, and, and, and those, those things overlap somehow. Yeah, and sometimes the weirdest and most unexpected things emerge in places that seem to be the most straight-laced or boring. So so you, you brought up Gothic subculture. Uh, gothic subculture around the world is good. How do you even narrow down what Gothic subculture is? Yeah, I, I try not to be too elitist or most, have a set uh, definition. Well, it's kind of like the, the, the running joke is, you know, no goths admit they're goth, right? But <laughs> I admit nothing. Yeah. <laughs> but 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 how do you, you know, how do you how do you find those those what is it to you that is goth? Yeah, well, I, I would say the Gothic subculture, if we define it as the one that emerged in, say, the late early 80s and is tied to post-punk and bands like The Cure and Bellhouse, well, that's tied to the music subculture, right? But there's also elements of uh, morbid fashion and aesthetics and a sense of community. But I guess when I do reporting on Gothic things, it could be something like an ancient graveyard. It could be something that has a darker history, like in Romania, Oh, it's just so interesting to me, the local folklore of things like vampires. The, the, um, like, what is goth in Romania like? Because I've never been there. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason that vampires are from Romania. Because when you get there and you walk through Bellu Cemetery, it does feel exactly like a film. One of those Dracula films, the coffins are raised and you see these decrepit crucifixes. The, the architecture of the city is also very dark Eastern European. And then I went to Bran Castle, the one that's associated with Dracula. There are these secret passages, the way the antique furniture is arranged and the spires of the castle. And no wonder Dracula is what it is and has taken over the imagination of so many people since then. Now, okay, so, so, okay, now we're getting somewhere interesting. So like, if, if, Part of that mystique is that is that death is close, right? When you're talking about, you know, people and the, the, the graveyards are so prominent and they're places where people go walking and visiting and whatever. And this 
just the concept of death is so close. And then you look at like, you know, modern American culture and, and it's just something that's pushed away entirely. We're not going to think about that. Right. Mm-hmm. The, the, the parlor became the, the living room. And that's a weird thing that happened in, in English grammar. So like, huh, interesting. I didn't know that. I learned something. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Cause I mean, pr- prior to the living room being the living room, that's where, when grandma died, that's, that's where she lay in state. Right. Right. So like, and death was just a lot closer. And I wonder if that pushing away kind of causes a, a an issue for everybody, uh, kind of not taking it as seriously as they should not valuing their life properly because they're not putting it in the context of hey it's short keep you know right yeah certainly and I think I'm someone along with other people who may or may not identify as goth who see the beauty in darker things they might instead of being afraid of something like a skull or a bat or something morbid they're drawn to it and they find it intriguing and they're able to embrace all the aspects of life and the way that it's expressed. So yeah, I do think you have something there. I think in the reporting I do, I really tried to show the beauty and the positive side of something that people might consider dark. For instance, if you're going to say the Mütter Museum in Philadelphia and there are arrangements of skulls everywhere, skeletons, one point of view is that it's frightening or taboo. But from my point of view, if I'm reporting on this place, I will talk about the history and just show the real beauty within these medical specimens that others may consider quite horrifying. Yeah, and and well, like you were saying, you were just in Mexico City, and the you know, Dia de los Muertos is is it, if you if you live in you know the the upper parts of the United States and you think about Halloween, right? It's got this dark, spooky thing going on, and then you get to the Southwest and you see how how. Central America does Halloween and it's this very cheerful, oh, we get to meet our grandparents Mm -hmm. kind of experience, which is really a whole lot cooler in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And it brings back what you said about getting closer. One of the coolest experiences I had was on that last trip to Mexico. And that was in, let's see, October, November, 2019. So just so people know, I haven't been traveling during the pandemic. This is from before. And I got to see a brushing of the bones ceremony in Pamuk, which is just outside of Merida in Mexico. And that's where the ancestors' bones, they're placed in open air boxes. And every year around Day of the Dead, they take them out of these boxes and they brush the bones of the ancestors. Now they're in different states of decay. Some you can see. It's the only part of them that's left, right? Like, I get it, that makes sense. Yeah. It's very beautiful. Yeah, there's a beauty in that. Exactly. And especially if you just describe it at face value, people might think, oh, that's gross or I don't understand it. But if you're actually there and that's really part of the beauty of travel, yeah, but if, if you're actually like, speaking yeah, to if the you're people. Like, if you're like a little kid and like, oh, every year grandma goes and brushes off grandpa's bones, that's powerful. Like that's 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 intense. Yes. Taking them out, really revering them, remembering them and then placing the flowers and offerings back. It's powerful, the same as in India, when I was there in Varanasi, I got to see the burning, the cremations at the banks of the river Ganges. Something again, that is hard to, for people maybe here to understand. You can actually see the bodies being carried out and being burned. And then 
people would throw the ashes or even fragments of bone into the river, something that maybe viscerally people here might have a strong reaction to it. But over there, that's the absolute best thing that they could do for the loved ones who have died. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it, it, there is no good, better, best way to go about any of that kind of, of grieving mourning, recognizing your own mortality kind of thing. But, but for you, well, 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 I, what, what would you like, what would you like your funeral to look like? Huh. Ooh, that's a good one. Well, people always say to make it a party, right? Um, it's interesting because I went to the death cafe in Bangkok and that celebrates all the different ways people around the world celebrate death. They have different displays and immersive things that you can do. So for example, they would talk about Swedish death cleaning. They would talk about Day of the Dead and there was a giant coffin that you could <laughs> go into. What, what Swedish death cleaning? <laughs> Swedish death cleaning. That's sort of like the Marie Kondo decluttering, but in Sweden, it's something that you do as you're getting older in preparation for your death so that you're- Oh, just to try and make it, well, yeah. Uh, all right, sure, that makes, like, just make it, make your transition as easy as possible on everyone else because they're so polite, sure. Yes. Okay, I get yeah, it. exactly. So you don't have your offspring- yeah, I don't, don't want to be a bother. I don't want to be a bother. I'll just clean everything. I'll put everything in boxes by myself and, and it'll be easy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I don't really, I haven't pictured an exact way for me to go, but I just find it really interesting, all the rituals. There's, in Tibet, there's the sky burials, right? Where when you're old, you choose to go off into the woods and you just, or not the woods, but into the mountains and lay down and you just, that's the way you pass underneath the sky. Is that the thing, is, is that part of like the, like the part of that is the, the birds come and? Yes, it is. <laughs> Yeah. yeah no that's a fascinating one to me because it's it that shows some sort of uh, to me the that thing with the getting eaten by carrion is really kind of a circle of life thing in a weird way that like the way we traditionally do burials here just isn't mm -hmm. right like like the amount of the, the the sheer amount of real estate we waste on on cemeteries is weird to me yeah and there's so much red tape and expense and it's often not a pleasant process both for the person who passed in advance and also for the families it's not meaningful and it isn't a good fit but i think there are well, organizations that, that uh, are I, mean, that. I think there's something to the process right like uh I think that there's there's part of the funerary procedure that is kind of like occupational therapy, like you're grieving. So we're just going to give you a lot of shit to do and forms to fill out mm -hmm. and, and do all this stuff to kind of take your mind off of it while you're processing your grief, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, a, an, an actual like emotional outlet for it. Right. Which is why the funeral, like all of the funeral proceedings can go fine. And then you get to the actual thing and the casket wheels out. And that's when, you know, your aunt from Boise breaks down and just becomes a basket case, even though she was a rock during all of the planning phases of things, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's very structured and ritualized if you do it within the context, say, 
of Catholicism or whatever religion. I'm actually interested. Have you been to a satanic funeral? Uh, no, can't say that I have. Yeah, that would be interesting to envision because there are satanic weddings and I know they do that at TST, right? At the headquarters. Uh, but... as, as far as I'm aware, that's a thing that's possible. I've never heard of anyone mm -hmm. doing one. Uh, and now with, with the whole ordination program rolling out, uh, I'm sure yeah. it'll become more prominent. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what type of ceremonial aspects and rituals emerge, what type of speeches, vows, yeah, things that well, people can create. It's one of the interesting things about Satanism in particular is it's so individualistic, right? Like that this this idea that like, you know, if you're going to have a satanic funeral, I feel like I feel like if 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 I was going to plan my satanic funeral, I should probably start writing it now. And hopefully in 30, 40 years it'll only be maybe a hundred pages, you know, like very specific shit that I want. Cause that's. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm not afraid to look at those aspects. I, th I think what you said, people brush it aside. They refuse to look at any aspect of death in daily life when it's really everywhere and it's all around the world. Well, I think that's part of the, part of the issue with things like pandemics where like, you know, you, people like to think that oh it can't happen to me and i'm invulnerable right mm -hmm. and and this idea that 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 you know if they just if they just think it hard enough it's not going to happen to them and so they push it all away and they don't think about they don't want to think about death they don't want to think about oh i need to push away the bad thoughts and just focus on positive stuff and she's like well no sometimes bad stuff happens and you have to plan for that like be an adult, right? Like that's part of adult thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, don't even get started on the pandemic, right? And people's responses, just not being able to handle the science and believe what they want to believe. I, I, see, it's not even that I don't think they can handle the science. I think that there's just an emotional wall there where they don't want to think about it. They don't want to, mm -hmm. people, don't, people don't like to think about their own mortality. Mm-hmm. But of course you, you have, and that's why you said, well, I'm gonna go travel around the world and see cool stuff and write about it, right? Yeah, I can say that I have no regrets that I spent so much time traveling over the past years. I always got the sense that it was a limited time slot and a limited commodity in a sense. I never thought that this opportunity to travel pretty much for work, right? Having the costs covered and being able to Revol uh, have my work revolve around it I didn't think that could last forever so there was always a sense of okay this is the moment to do it now you never know what could happen and that ended up being true with the pandemic with travel completely shutting down so like when 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 you started out doing this like I mean I, I know what freelancing is like and <laughs> I mean the pay is not great most of the time right like and and to for me to have to write a travel budget into that just strikes me as as unnerving because i mean like the one time i did anything of travel writing that actually you know got any any sense of traction right i got paid like 50 bucks but i wrote off like 600 dollars in hotel and travel fees <laughs> so like so like what like 
the, just sticking to that long enough to make it be at, is something that can actually work is amazing to me. Well, things kind of unrolled organically and I didn't focus on travel from the beginning. I started out mainly doing fashion blogging and focusing on Japanese subcultures. So that's when I started a million years ago in 2007. I definitely benefited from being an early adopter because blogs were new at the time. So that led to early opportunities in writing, in writing books and in doing TV stuff that I feel I would not have had if I started later on. And I guess my writing about, I naturally gravitated to writing about interesting subcultures and people within Tokyo. So I started getting offers to write about that in other places as well. And that led to trips that are covered by tourism boards or travel companies. So I'm very open about it. The trips are in collaboration with different places and that's how I cover the expenses. Also the work I do is a combination of blogging, social media, and also freelancing. So freelancing is certainly not the only thing. There's also the travel TV production. There's a million different oh, sure, things sure, that sure. I'm juggling. Uh -huh. Yeah, but you know, like, I'm, you know, you look at like, you know, 20, 2000. Well, the world has changed because of the internet, right? Like it, to, to be a travel writer, if you were, you know, 20 years ago, it's an entirely different animal than it, than it is now. Yeah, it always helps though to have a niche, no matter what it is for me. And even if it seems out there, people might think, oh, if you focus on death and Satanism and Gothic stuff, that's too extreme. But no, in fact, publications want something different. And if it's well reported and if the story is meaningful, then any topic is a good one. It's always a good story. And so, so what are the what are the tips you would give to to aspiring travel bloggers um i would say first just get your writing out there don't baby it too much or worry too much about whether it's ready or right i've been doing this for don't, so long don't and worry about not getting paid at first i think that's yeah a yeah and do it because you enjoy the process of writing and photography, it, don't do it for other factors like free travel or money or whatever it might be. You have to really love the medium. And that's something that I always loved from the beginning. So I, I think that comes through. Um, I would say also, yeah, it, it helps to get to know others in the industry. People are often happy to connect and just keep at it really. You learn more every single time the first, if you're trying to pitch freelance, you won't have the best emails or pitches at first, but you'll get better. You'll get feedback and then you'll get some assignments. Every single time you'll get better and it just gets easier. Everything really is a skill, right? That you develop. So the writing gets easier. You know how to focus and how to craft a story. Over time, it gets better and better. What's the, what's the longest stretch you spent like doing a, a travel junket of place to place to place to place before you got back home? Uh, let's see. Well, I don't know. It's a bit hard to say, but I did live in Tokyo for months at a time around 2007, eight, and then, and 2008, nine. Bounce from place to place from Tokyo? Uh, in the earlier days, I mainly focused on Tokyo. So 
around that time, I didn't travel as much. It was really after 2012 that I started being invited on press trips. Now, press trips were traditionally for serious print journalists, right? People who wrote for National Geographic. But they started realizing around 2012 that Whatever. bloggers... Whatever, Murdoch now, who cares? <laughs> yeah, but they started realizing the influence or the reach of bloggers yeah. and seeing them as professionals rather than a fad. So that's when tourism boards and companies started creating press trips specifically for people in online running their own websites and that's when I started the first one was to Hawaii and also to Mexico so starting a bit small on a group trip and then that grew to individualized trips where they would only send me and my filmmakers or photographers we would craft the itinerary on our own we would negotiate deliverables and the budget and they would cover everything and they would also pay us for our work see that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> so so well, tell me about sat satanic or gothic places in hawaii because i've been to hawaii and there ain't many <laughs> yeah so that was one such place where i didn't focus on specifically something satanic that we talked about independent designers, some really interesting artisans. We visited a woman who handcrafts jewelry that looks like shells and whatnot. So it can always be just a bit offbeat. We talked about food because of the Japanese connection. I did a lot of stories that focused on Japanese culture in Hawaii. There's a chef who, oh, I'm still dreaming of the meal he made that combined elements of his traditional Japanese cooking from when he was growing up with the flavors of Hawaii. So I, I really do a whole span of things. It's not always spooky. Sometimes it's food. Sometimes it's Japanese culture. I just did an article, say, for Lonely Planet's budget travel about visiting Japanese gardens in America. So that's not necessarily gothic, but it's still within my wheelhouse and very me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it, it's good to have that kind of range. Yeah, and it's good for me too, just to be able to stretch my muscles and be able to write about different topics. I always choose things that interest me, but yeah, it's, it's good well, to be able to have that breath. That's it helps. Interesting thing. With, with the pandemic and you haven't been traveling around and you've had time to do these deep dives into other things, what, what, what is the stuff that, that piques your interest now that, that like once you can get back out on the road and like what are the what's the stuff that you want to check out that you haven't seen yet i feel like the list is endless because places keep changing places are always evolving and so are their subcultures japan is a great example it's gone through so many different eras of harajuku style tribes and different club scenes and it will continue to evolve so i'm always drawn to big cities like that i don't know places I've been to have changed a lot. I mean, One you of have my to balance that out. Like, I mean, like you could go check out the club scene in Hong Kong, but there's also probably going to be riots. You know, like mm -hmm. you need to, to to really seriously. I I had a friend of mine. Uh, I was at their wet. It was part of their wedding story, and the the best man recounted it. How like part of her coming to meet him while he was at his job, and like there was a riot at the airport. And it got shut down and she got had to get, you know, quarantine and all this stuff, you know? So like, mm -hmm. and, and this is, this is 15, 20 years ago now. And, and, and 
that kind of thing where it's just like well you know that gets into the place where oh you're starting to talk about uncomfortable stuff as a travel writer that turns people off you know yeah and there are some people that specialize in I guess you could say riskier destinations or deep dives into things that maybe have to do with war conflict and that's not my thing it's just not my beat that somebody else is so that's not something that i would personally <laughs> seek out but in a, i don't really yeah. i don't look good in a black jacket it's really unflattering i think the it really uh, the pandemic has made me realize though you have to go to places while you have the opportunity mm. for instance myanmar was one of my favorite countries in the past few years I okay. went there and they have this incredible punk scene, like an underground 1970s style rock. Like, <laughs> I, I have been saying since, since 2014, 2015, I keep waiting for there to just be like an amazing punk scene in Greece that's not like Nazi weird, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> and it hasn't happened yet. And, and, and I don't understand why. Like, I just feel like, you know, there's just parts of, of the Greek punk scene that should turn into, uh, you know, more like what the Spanish punk scene is, isn't it? I don't understand. But, it, you know, yeah. I feel like th there's something there that's just not happening, and I don't understand why. It's so interesting to me what forces come together, and often unexpected ones, to create a vibrant subculture like that. In Myanmar, a lot of it's influenced by Buddhist philosophy. There's even a documentary called My Buddha is Punk. And I wrote some articles that I called Monks and Punks because there's just this interesting <laughs> synthesis of the two that you would not expect. <laughs> no, there, there is. And uh, isn't there like, oh, see, I'm going to blank on where. I want to say it's, I want to say it's Thailand, but I don't think I'm right. Where was some dude got elected to uh, parliament, but he's also in like a death metal band oh i can't remember maybe maybe i want to say it's it's thailand vietnam i want to say somewhere you know in that just kind of general <laughs> but <laughs> but but i think that that's great like where he, he you know puts on a suit and goes and says his stuff and then at the end of the day he puts on very kiss-esque makeup and goes and screams on stage for a while and i think that's fantastic and i think we I think I, I think American politics would be very different if like, you know, Joe Biden walked out with like Alice Cooper. <laughs> oh, very much so. But I mean, they, we don't have the same theocratic or Christian element in Asia, right? And people are very good in Asia, especially in Japan, at separating your private life from your personal public, sorry, from your public life. So if you do your job, say you're a great politician, you work hard, you have great policies. It doesn't matter what you do in your private life. If you put on kiss makeup and scream and, or go to fetish parties, whatever it is, what if you keep that-, that I, Right. <laughs> yeah, it has nothing to do with your ability to do a good job in your role in public society. So Asia is very good at differentiating between the two. So so do you think that there's there's some, is, is there, well, is there something about, about uh western culture that makes that more difficult i think so yeah it, it's all different right there it has, it's not as if asia does has a sense of 
shame, right? Losing face. There are different elements of what is considered acceptable and not socially, what is taboo and not, but it's not the same driving force that you see, especially with the theocratic encroachments in America. Well, I not even just theocratic encroachments, just a sense of entitlement, right? Like you see all these videos uh, of, 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 Becky's and Karen's screaming at, at store clerks and you're just like mm -hmm. yeah, like why aren't you ashamed <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean there's so many theories right and if you've I don't know if you've been to around Asia Japan Hong Kong no I haven't no I'm sure you will soon but when you do yeah you'll see just the way that people react to each other there's so much more respect of personal space and politeness and whatnot and I don't know if it's it's part of the culture or what it might be the historic practices but it's very different well I it's interesting that you mentioned that because I was having a conversation the other day with some of the Satan peeps and uh I was I was making a, an analogy trying to talk about how Satanism different is different in the on the west coast than it is on the east coast and i said something the effect of well you know like out here like good fences make good neighbors and that's kind of it right so so mm -hmm. if you extrapolate that to the east where everyone's kind of more land confined especially in places like japan right you you got this sense of oh well everybody just kind of minds their own business better Yes, there's certainly that. People have to figure out ways to survive when they're all on top of each other in these mega cities, tiny apartments, cramped subways. And has, has that been a part of your travel experience? Like, have you, have you done the whole like, oh, I rented this room for the night and it's, it's literally like a, a six by three box with a bedroll? <laughs> Yeah, but to me, it's not even a novelty. That's just the way it is there. And I've been going to Asia since I was a kid. My family's from Hong Kong. So ever since I was one years old, we've been going back for summers and kind of hopping around Asia since we were there staying with family. So from the beginning, it's not a strange thing to me. These, this is just the way of living in these tiny places. Although I wouldn't recommend staying in a capsule hotel. I didn't stay in one, but we shot some TV shows where we did some scenes in a capsule hotel. And that is like being in a coffin. Is, is, is th that seems like an uncomfortable way to sleep. <laughs> like, yeah, but again, having... not bad for the price. And if you're just doing an overnight. <laughs> no, yeah, but I don't know. Like, like, I mean, even in a hostel, you've got like at least a bunk bed. You... <laughs> <laughs> I think I would choose the capsule though over the hostel <laughs> for the sense Way of more sanitary, <laughs> definitely more personal space. Like once you're in there, you're in there. <laughs> yeah, although I don't know about the sanitary aspect because, fun fact, there's a little TV above the coffin space, and the TV does show porn. So oh, you have people in their private capsules. Yeah, you can just guess what's going on in these individual capsules every night. Yeah. Well, what you gonna do? Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you make do. So, 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 if you had to pick, like, best road story, what, what is your, what is your best travel journalism story? 
Ooh, best road story. Do you mean from a road trip or just any travel story? Yeah, road trip, any travel story, either. Whatever your best story is. Oh man, there were so many. Some of the best travel stories have to do with the TV shows that we shoot in Japan, because that gives us an opportunity to bring on the craziest and most eccentric people that we know and do ridiculous things. I've done quite a few episodes with a German show called Yoko Gegen Klaus, and I'm pronouncing that wrong, but it's a challenge show that airs in Germany. So in every episode, they send the hosts to a different country, and we've shot in Japan and in Vancouver, and they make them do a ridiculous challenge. So for one show, we gave them bagel heads. That's the body modification that puts saline under the foreheads, giving them a temporary bulge in the forehead. Have you seen those pictures? Uh, no, I haven't, but it, okay, I kind of understand. <laughs> yeah, kind of makes Botox them look like aliens. But with saline, so they look kind of Neanderthalish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like right. there's a bagel underneath their foreheads. So we did that. And we also did an episode where we lit, we sewed a man's lips shut together with needle and thread. And yeah, and he was forced to sing on stage. We did an episode also with them where we had really? a guy forced to sing <laughs> on stage with his mouth sewn shut. <laughs> yeah, but he sang that REM song that mm, mm, so he just kind of hummed along. That was part of the gag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did one with a guy dressed as a giant penis who we called Mr. Keen and we had him perform on stage with a bunch of other weird characters, including three keyboard players who had a giant metal skewer stuck through each of their cheeks horizontally. So if you imagine a shish kebab with three people's cheeks in between, that's kind of what we did. <laughs> so ironically, some of the craziest Not stuff- like that in LA in 2017. Hmm, yeah. So yeah, I think some of the wildest stuff was through the TV shows because that's what they want and they give us the budget and the freedom to make it happen. So we do. Well, but when I say when when I say travel stories, I'm kind of thinking of, oh, you know, I'm trying to go through customs and I've got my laptop and my camera and whatever and they give me a hard time and <laughs> because I've got so many electronics in my bag and that kind of thing. Or, uh, I feel like you have some fun stories, though, from TST and other things. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> Dashing across the Sydney airport with a brand new tattoo on my leg. Oh. Try and catch my connection. Ugh, it was murder. Oh. <laughs> but that's how that goes. Yeah, travel has that aspect. That's almost an aspect I don't even, it, it doesn't phase me or I don't even really think about it because that's just part of what happens. There's always delays. There's uncomfortable, sleepless nights and things that pop up that you just you have feel, to deal with. You feel generally at home in airports? Because I don't. Like for me, airports are the worst. I just want to get from point A to point B. And if there were, if, if there were wormholes or teleporters or whatever, I'd be all about it. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, I, I don't think so much easier. But... No, I don't like them per se, but I just, it's fine. <laughs> I practice what equanimity in all situations, right? <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs> 
I mean, I don't, I'm not for or against them. It's part of the journey. I just make it as comfortable as possible. And the funny thing is before COVID, I'm already on the germophobic side. So I don't like being around huge crowds of coughing people. And when I traveled, I always wiped down the seat and I would wear a mask in the plane. So if anything, post-COVID travel will be better for me because I'm you're, not the freak. You're more normalized, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and it does work. I would never catch colds or I never got the flu, never got sick. It's just science. It's not me being a weirdo. No, it's not you being a weirdo. It's just, well, it's just <laughs> you're, you're more precautionary than other people. Yeah, I wash my hands. <laughs> So, 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 so what are the, I mean, obviously you have ties in the East and, and what is the, what is the impression over there of how United States is handling things? Uh, you mean handling the pandemic? Yeah. In general? Uh, I don't know. I think it's hard to say because I think sometimes people in America, they're, they just think that people around the world are aware of everything that they do, the rollout of the vaccines or every policy measure, things to do with states and their different mandates and restrictions and whatnot. But actually, people very, don't know that. We're very egotistical people, and we assume that everybody knows what's <laughs> going on with us at all times. Yeah. yeah, so I don't think people necessarily know that. I think people obviously were pretty horrified at Trump when he was in office and horrified that things were spreading like crazy but uh, to be frank a lot well i'm in canada right and my friends here i think it's there, quite is, is there, ironic is kind of a sense like abroad of 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 you know well we could go visit america but <laughs> is that kind of part of, of the discussion of when people are thinking of coming and visiting you know the grand canyon or whatever <laughs> well, I think it's America. I, I think it's just like my perspective, kind of as an outsider being from Canada. I'm not American. There are so many aspects of, in America, like certain cities and subcultures and people that are amazing. I love going to LA and seeing my friends and being in places like New Orleans, Salem. And but, it's, but I mean, there's nothing I mean, else. The same is true of, of, of London and Paris and South Africa and, and like so. You know, obviously, there's always going to be these sub pockets in these cities, and people who are who are prone to going and exploring will always find those places. But at the same time, like, if I was going to travel to Europe right now, I'd feel better about going to Europe than I would about staying here if it was possible, because Americans are kind of dicks, <laughs> you know. Yeah, I will say, well, I went to school, uh, university and law school in the States. So I got to live in the States for a while and I would have an opportunity to live and work there if I wanted. But I think I made the right choice to have Canadian healthcare <laughs> and be in Vancouver. And from here I can travel and I can be in the States if I wanted. You guys have no rules for <laughs> travel, so I can come. <laughs> no, but you're banned from here for now. Yeah, well, sooner or later. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been lovely. I think this has been a, a wonderful talk. 
Same. I really enjoyed talking to you about everything, about death. I'm, I'm glad you stopped by. Yeah, let's have tea again soon. Yeah, anytime. Perfect. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, this was fun. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for stopping. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, chat you soon. All right, bye-bye.